Don't you wish he was wrong about you? You know, don't you wish? And, you know, Good Friday, I mean, right here, the Apostle Paul said that the crystal clear message of the cross would be two things. I mean, it would be ridiculous to most everybody. And I, I mean, this should land home with us. If, you know, if we walked out, you know, tomorrow, you know, we got up and uh, we were going to walk around the water cooler to the conference room, you know, to the, uh, um, to the high school dining room or at gym class. None of us would have one difficulty at all sharing in a certain viewpoint, which was our, the world that we are living in right now is jacked up. Would anyone disagree? You'd have no problem trying to convince people like, no, 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 things aren't going good right now. Everybody would be like, no, you're right. Okay, and if you ask the question, what's wrong with it? All of the agreement that you just had at the water cooler before that for 10 or 15 minutes would suddenly evaporate right in your fingers. Because they would have a bunch of reasons, a bunch of things that they would say, well, I'll tell you what's really wrong. And you would know. Because the cross would tell you. You know? And don't you wish it was wrong about you? I mean, don't you wish that the message of Christianity really at the core was, look, there's a handful of real bad people out there, but it's not you. And certainly you've spilled the milk a few times, but really it was just a mistake. In your heart, you were trying to do the right thing. And all you really need to do is just get above a a D plus in the morality of life. And Jesus will nudge you the last little bit. You know? Don't you wish that was the message of the cross? That God basically rewards people who are trying to do a pretty good job as long as they're not a real monster and you can get into heaven for being just good enough. Except for one thing. Um, If you're conscious towards the end at the moments when you know that you're about to pass through, do you want to lay there hoping that you've made the right decision about how good is good enough? Or do you want to know? Do you want to know? Tonight, you know, what we're going to, in just a little bit, we're going to reflect on the cross a little bit more. Our own musicians are going to come out. They have some special music that goes with that booklet that you have. And those about 10 minutes of music, I want, I'm hoping that specifically what they could do for us is we could really, 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 really reflect and think just what the cross of Jesus Christ meant for you personally. So that when you take communion, um, that juice, you know, that little one milliliter of juice in that communion cup that you got will be extra sweet. It should, it should taste extra sweet tonight. Uh, but first what I want to do is I want to, um, we're going to point to the events uh, right around the cross. And I'm going to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word that you can get it out. I'm going to be in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to ask that you'd stand to your feet for uh, the reading of God's Word. We're not going to read 
I'm going to read a couple verses just to get us started and then pray, and then we're going to work our way through these sections of the scripture. Um, John chapter 17, verse 26. This is the Lord Jesus praying and talking to his heavenly Father. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? Let's pray. Lord, help me in these few moments. Lord, um, this this night, this event, and the days that followed in your resurrection are the, the pinnacle of human history, the explanation for everything that's wrong, and the early evidence to us about where everything is headed. It's our hope. Tonight, I pray that my words and our songs and our meditations would be saturated with your Holy Spirit so that they're filled with glory, light, truth, power, love. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You you can have a seat. What knocked all those people down? I mean, I hope you picked up on that. When Judas went to procure a band of soldiers, a band of soldiers, this would have been the soldiers that were stationed at the Antonia Tower in the temple, which meant that this unit that would have come with Judas would have been between three and 500 Roman elite forces. I'm going to guess and say that there's about 500 people in here right now. Not quite Roman elite forces, but about 500. Okay. Is this about how many people you pictured that night? You know, it was it kind of nine guys in bathrobes and a torch? Military unit of, you know, three to five hundred guys. And Judas and some chief priests and lanterns and torches and weapons. Not clubs, weapons. The Romans knew how to kill. And they come for Jesus. And... Certainly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what you're going to see is as we work through a few chapters, or a few verses here uh, in John, um, the Holy Spirit has inspired John, the writer of this gospel, to present the events around the cross with a different color. Not different facts. Each one of the writers of the gospel uh, presents Jesus Christ, his ministry, his life in a specific way. And when you put them together, they come together with great richness. But when you listen to one of them, you can specifically hear the melody line that they're singing in their telling of it. And John wants us to know from start to finish of his gospel, Jesus is in charge. 500 Roman elite forces, Judas, the military guard, come to arrest Jesus. He doesn't hide. The good shepherd 
lays down his life for the sheep. He goes out to the gate. The good shepherd goes out and faces the threat, and he goes and steps right up to them. And who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Ego eimi. Same two words that the angel of the Lord said to Moses from the burning bush. And when he said those words, I am, what made 500 trained military forces get smashed to the ground? What did that? Now, John doesn't tell us. Jesus is the word of God. We should expect that his voice thunders. We understand now because of science, sound waves have force and power to them. It could be that his voice was so powerful that the sound waves themselves knocked these guys over. That could be. We also know because Jesus told us, I have legions of angels that are around me all the time, myriads and myriads of angels, and all it would take is a snap of my finger, and you all would get owned right now. It could be that, he, it could be that the angels put these guys all on the ground, and maybe that was a cue why Peter took out his sword and said, well, if the angels are going after them, maybe I can too. And while they're on the ground, Jesus asked them a question again. Who are you looking for again? <laughs> Can you imagine this, uh, um, sir, uh, Jesus of Nazareth? And then he gives them a command. And remember, this is Jesus. This is God. When Jesus gives a command, people obey. Jesus says, if you seek me, let these men go. And you ever, have you ever wondered, with this many people and with the disciples being such a threat, with Jesus. Why was Jesus arrested and they were all let go? Because that's what Jesus told them to do. And I mean, imagine if you were one of those soldiers, and now they said, yeah, tie up his hands. And you're like, it's not his hands that it, it, we're worried about. It's the mouth. The mouth seems to be the most dangerous thing. And they, they bind his hands. Not one, not one of those guards would have walked him out of this garden thinking that those those bonds were really holding him. Jesus made it crystal clear. No, no one's going to take my life. I, I'm, give, I'm giving my life. I'm doing this. So they take him to see the high priest. Here's what it says in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him. I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And now we have to think about what happens next is a logical conclusion. What happens next is Jesus gets smacked in the mouth for what he said and the way that he said it. He's not exactly showing a lot of respect to Caiaphas in this interaction. Because Caiaphas is trying to question Jesus, but Jesus is the judge of the whole world. So who's going to ask the questions? When you're, when you're questioning the judge of the whole world, do you think he's going to answer your questions, or do you think you're going to have to answer his? Why do you ask me? Ask them. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And notice Jesus' response is like, oh, you're right. He's such an amazing guy. I should not have said that that way. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, 
then bear witness about the wrong. But if what I say it is right, why are you striking me? And it's, okay, <laughs> I've had enough. Let's, let's send him on to Pontius Pilate. What happens in Pontius Pilate's interaction with Jesus? I'm picking it up at verse 33 if you're following along. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now see, here we go again. Pontius Pilate is trying to interrogate Jesus with questions. This is what the judge does. When when a judge is in power and authority and someone has been convicted of something, it's the, the judge has the authority to ask the questions and the defendant has the responsibility under his authority to answer the questions. And Pilate thinks that he's in authority over Jesus, so he thinks that he's the question asker. But watch how Jesus does not let him have control of this discussion. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus said, Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. You said it, not me. And the entire time of this interaction with Jesus, Pontius Pilate is trying to get the upper hand over Jesus, trying to get Jesus to cooperate with him because Pontius Pilate is scared in this interaction. In fact, everybody who's interacting with Jesus in this event is scared Skipping ahead to chapter 19, Pontius Pilate enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And now Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Not the words of a guy who is hoping to get off the hook here. Amen? From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. And so they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, Jesus started off this whole interaction in a a garden called Gethsemane, and the word Gethsemane means um, the olive press. It's the place where the olives would be pressed. I mean, if you've read the Bible, you understand, and if you like Italian food, you also understand olive oil is important. In the Bible, olive oil is very symbolic. Olive oil is consistently symbolic of the Holy Spirit. 
And did you know that in the Bible, olives, olive trees and olive wood are especially significant of things that are holy? In the temple, in the Old Testament, in the the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the Old Testament, the instructions for how that was to be built were given to Moses directly by God. God told Moses precisely how to build the entire structure because he was giving him instructions that were based on a heavenly copy. In heaven, God is worshipped wonderfully in divine glory and power and beauty. And Moses had instructions to build a worship structure that would model that. And God gave him instructions that were in great detail, which means every one of those details is wonderfully rich and important. At the very, at the holiest place in that, uh, in that temple was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the intimate, personal throne room of God. At the throne room of God, who is a great king, there were two throne guardians. You know, like, um, you ever see old movies where, like, Roman emperors are sitting on a throne and there's, like, tigers or cougars, you know, one at each side or two lions that were down there? Well, God has throne guardians, too, except they're more powerful than lions or tigers. They're angels. And just to communicate how big they were, Moses was told that he was supposed to have um, 18-foot angels carved out of olive wood, covered in gold, and guarding the way into the holy presence of God. But did you know that the Bible presents Jesus as the olive of God? The Apostle Paul picks up on this when he says that the entire Christian church filled with all the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are symbolized as an olive tree. Some of those branches were very native to to the Jewish faith and some of them were wild olive branches that got grafted on. But the Apostle Paul says every one of those olives on the olive tree, which is you, if you're a true Christian, you are one of the olives on the olive tree of Christianity. How did that olive tree come to be? Didn't Jesus said, unless the seed goes into the ground. And John is trying to be real clear and specific. Jesus goes to this garden on the Mount of Olives because he is the olive of God. And he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where olives get pressed. And didn't Jesus, that night in Gethsemane, didn't he get pressed? Didn't he get squeezed? And what came out? The water and the blood. And on the cross, the olive of God, Jesus Christ, he was pressed in his prayer the night before in the garden, and on the cross, he was pierced and crushed. And what happens to an olive if you squeeze it? What comes out? Olive oil. Right? I think that's how that works. I've never done that. I'm not an olive oil farmer, but that seems like it makes logical sense to me. You press an olive, what comes out? Olive oil. What's olive oil symbolic of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. How did anybody ever 
get to have the experience of having a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. How did that ever happen to anybody? There's only one reason. Jesus was crushed. He put his, he laid his life down and he was personally crushed so that he could give his first disciples and his later disciples like me and you the Holy Spirit. And do you know how important that is? One of the things that Jesus prayed at the end of chapter 17, listen to what he said. He said, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. What love does God the Father use to love the Son? How good of a love do you think that is? How would you like to be loved with that kind of love? Does anybody think that'd be a great thing to have? Do you know the love with which the Father loves the Son? Do you know what that love is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love of God. Jesus Christ was pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane and crushed on the cross so that out of his life, the love of God in the person of the Holy Spirit could come into your life. Sometimes a Good Friday service like this is filled with a lot of mourning and tears and sadness. A lot of attention is paid to the vivid, physical, painful details of Jesus Christ and the cross. And that is a good thing to do. That is true. But that is not what we're doing tonight. What I'm doing tonight is following the account of John when he's showing us The cross did not happen to Jesus. He was not a victim of the cross. He set his eyes to the cross because he was determined to do something. He was determined that the love that the Father had given to him was going to be in his disciples, and he was going to win that for them. And he understood the only way that the Holy Spirit is going to come into anybody's life and bring the love of God into their lives is he is going to have to be squeezed, pressed, and crushed, humiliated. And yet the whole Gospel of John, the the latest chapters leading up to the cross, tell us one thing. Jesus kept saying it over and over again. I'm going to be lifted up, and everything that happens to me on Good Friday is about my glorification. I'm going to be glorified. Look at this amazing thing that I'm going to achieve. Look at what I'm going to do, and look what I'm going to do for my people. Um, the, The name Golgotha, the skull hill, the place of the skull, where Jesus Christ is crucified. The... This, this place has quite a history. Did you know that um, a famous Jewish king who was a, a, um, a prefigure of King Jesus, his name was David, and David, when he was a young man, went out and fought a great victory against the terrible giant. All right, all the young people in the room, you know who that giant is. Tell me, what's his name? Yeah, Goliath. Well, not, some not-so-young people said that too. Great. Great. <laughs> 
do you remember what happened to, uh, to after after David um, killed Goliath with a uh, with a stone? Do you know what happened to Goliath right after that? Anybody know what happened after that? Remember David cut his head off? Do you remember that? <laughs> that what, that's not in the children's Bible, is it? <laughs> and then remember what he did with his head? He kept it in his tent. True. This is true Bible story time. And then you know what he did? Do you know he took it to Jerusalem? But because Jerusalem's a holy city, couldn't take the head into the city. And did you know that the word Golgotha, um, uh, in Aramaic, it's the combination. It's, it's a combined word. Uh, Goliath, does everybody remember Goliath's hometown, where it was? Goliath from Gath. You push those two words together, and what you get is Golgotha. The place of the skull. Not because the mound reminded them of a skull. Because a terrible, giant, awful, wicked enemy His head was there. Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't happening to him. One of the last things that John records... After he looks down at his mom and John and says, John, take care of my mom. John was Jesus' cousin, so this makes a lot of sense that John would take responsibility for Jesus' mother. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus is so in charge. He is so in control of this situation. He decides the moment that he's going to die. The Bible teaches over and over again, Jesus holds the power over death, and he holds it right here. He's not going to die until he's ready to. Can you imagine? Can you imagine wielding that kind of power? And he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head. I did it. What's good Friday? You know, what are we doing here tonight? Jesus said, when, this, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I'll draw, I'm going to draw people to me. When he's lifted up, when you see him, and interaction after interaction, decision after decision, 
He's choosing to go to the cross. The cross isn't happening to him. He's choosing to go to the cross because he's accomplishing something. And what he's accomplishing is the love of God coming into your life the very first time. What do we do? You know, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. He did it. And now what do we do? Now I'm going to ask the music team to come out because we're going to do a few things that seem real appropriate to me to do on Good Friday. Um, I mean, I hope that one of the things that happens when you see him doing this when you see how loyal he was to you And when you see all that he was, all that he willingly went through to make a purchase of something that you have got to have that you could not have without him. When you think that all that he's done for you, I would think that one of the things that we would ask ourselves is, is there any, is there any way that you're being disloyal to him tonight? You know, is there any pattern of sin in your own life that you're like, look, I know that Jesus doesn't like this, but he, ah, he'll be fine with it. I mean, if, if sin is not a big deal, if sin's not that big of a deal, then why in the world is the Son of God up there dying for it? Are you walking in loyalty and loving and holiness? And if you're not, Jesus promised, if anybody confesses, confess your sins, I'll forgive you of your sins, I'll cleanse you from unrighteousness. Tonight's a good night for confession. Tonight's also a good night to ask yourself a question. How, Jesus said that but by his death, what was going to happen in my life was the Holy Spirit is going to come into my life and he's going to bring the love of the Father, the love that the Father has for the Son. I'm going to experience that love. Are you experiencing that? When you look at the cross, are you, in, in all of that it is, is, you know, is, is there something in you that's like, oh my gosh, look at, look at how the Father loves me. Look at what he would pay to purchase the Holy Spirit and give him to me. Look at the Father loving you and look at the Son loving you. And does that, is that sinking in tonight? Um, 
Last thing, are you proud of him? I mean, I think when I was growing up as a kid, maybe I was like 14 or 15, we'd come to Good Friday and I'd hear the story about Peter betraying Jesus and be like, well, some teenage girl faced Peter and he melted in front of her. And I was like, oh, come on, what a sissy. Don't you think that? And I don't know about you, but, you know, every month that we go on, when I, you know, I read the papers and I look at what's happening out there and I see, I see how much there's a growing group of people in our culture who hate him. They despise him. And the Bible said they would. That they would look at the cross and they would say, that is so stupid. They would hate him. And Jesus said that too. They're gonna, they hated me. Don't think they're, you're, <laughs> they hate me. They're going to hate you. And on this night, Peter was embarrassed of him. And I don't know, I mean, I think on a night like tonight, when you retell the story of your hero, isn't Jesus a hero? When you retell the story of your hero, isn't part of what we're doing is kindling a flame of love and loyalty and great pride? Now listen, not pride in yourself. But to say, ah, yeah, I I bear the name of Jesus Christ. And that is the thing that I'm most proud of in my whole life is that I belong to him. If you hate him and you hate me for loving and being devoted to him, then you can hate me and I'll be okay with that. Are you proud of him tonight? So tonight the team is going to lead us just through a few songs that express some of the events of the cross that we just shared about. And I'm going to ask that you take out your communion. And we're not going to take it right now. But the Bible says it's a good thing that while communion is in our hand and we're about to take it, that we examine ourselves. Is there any, is there any sin that you're holding on to that looks lovely to you? And in the, in the face of the cross, isn't it terrible? Look at what it did to him. And is the love of God that you see in the face of Jesus Christ, is, that, is it getting down there? Is it sinking in? Not just a fact in your head, but hot love in your heart. Ask God. And then the last one, Matt. Aren't you proud of him? And don't you admire him? And is he your glory? Think.